I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 107, The Omnipotent Ear. And this episode comes from a speech I recently gave at Fordham University for the McLuhan in New York event. That was on October 13th, 2017. So here's my talk. Enjoy. The Light on Light Through podcast. Um, I agree with uh, everything Eric said, which is pretty amazing because I rarely agree with anyone completely. <laughs> but I especially think when Eric said that everything that he and Marshall and the other media theorists back in 67, 68 were talking about, how everything came true, that's not hyperbole. That itself is truth. So it turns out Donald Trump said, I think about a week or two ago, but it's hard to keep track, that he thinks, he's not sure, but maybe he came up with the term fake news. He certainly is its leading practitioner. Uh, but he certainly didn't come up with the term. And I don't know who came up with the term, but as long ago as 1969, there's a tape of Marshall McLuhan being interviewed on some Canadian television network, and there's Marshall going on about fake news. He says, all broadcast news is fake. <laughs> and unsurprisingly, what Marshall was saying then about fake news was far more subtle. Uh, that actually even what anyone, not only Trump, has been saying about fake news recently. Because McLuhan wasn't just saying that it's false, he was saying something much more profound. He was saying that whatever you see on television is not as it actually was. And I remember the first time I began thinking about that, you know, Walter Cronkite used to end his broadcast and that's what it was. And look, I loved Walter. Uh, he was great. He looked like my wife's father, so that was a good thing also. And he uh, was a very honest person. Uh, at Gallup Poll in the 70s, he was chosen the most trusted man in America. But he was not telling the truth when he said, and that's the way it was. A more accurate rendition would have been, and that's the way a small group of editors and CBS News thought you should think. But you can understand why Walter didn't want to say that. He was not a good uh, But that's what the film was talking about. And that's still true today. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't trust these media, but we need to appreciate them for what they are. You know, the New York Times says all the news that's fit to print. Yeah. It's really, again, all the news that a small group of editors decided might be deemed fit to print. So, okay, we'll print it and we'll decide whether to put it on page one or ten or on the top or the bottom of the phone. So that was 1969 when Marshall said that. And if you go back five years, 1964, the book Understanding Media that Eric mentioned, which came out actually the same year that the Beatles hit big, and I'll get back to the Beatles. Um, 
There's a great chapter in that book in which Marshall McLuhan talks about the Greek myth, and Eric told you about one Greek myth. Uh, McLuhan loved to apply Greek myths to our present age. And in this case, he was talking about the Greek myth regarding Narcissus. And he wrote a little chapter called Narcissus Narcosis. I'm sure most of you have heard the story. I won't repeat it at great length, but the gist of it is this was an incredibly good-looking young man who pretty much fell in love with his own reflection. And his favorite pastime was looking into pools of water and gazing wistfully at himself. And some Greek nymphs came by and tried to interest him in other things, but nope, Narcissus was just totally engaged in looking at his reflection. And by the way, there are several endings to that story. My favorite one is he was so much in love with his own reflection that he tried to reach into the water and get it and fell in and drowned. <laughs> it's a little apocalyptic, but uh, that's, you know, something that McLuhan back in 1964 was able to say when we watch television, we're really looking at our own reflections. We're not literally seeing ourselves, but we see ourselves in what we see in our media. And that's why it's so engrossing. Well, that sounds very familiar because you hear people today talking about news bubbles, right? And they tend to blame Facebook and Twitter. You know, we surround ourselves with news that just reinforces our own opinions. That's true enough. But it didn't begin with Facebook and Twitter. It began long before that, and McLuhan was talking about it in 1964. And you can go back a, two years before that to the Gutenberg Galaxy. And this, of course, is one of Marshall McLuhan's most famous ideas or concepts or percepts or whatever you feel comfortable calling it. You've all heard about it, the global village. So in 1962, there was the Telstar satellite that was launched. That's probably what got Marshall McLuhan thinking about that. But there wasn't much of a global village. In fact, there was no global village in 1962. There were national groups that watched television, but they weren't villages. Because in a village, people interact. But people who watched television in 1962, all they were doing was watching. They weren't communicating. So it was really a village of wires. Almost, you know, if you want to get like into horror movies, a village of the damned. But again, you don't have to get that apocalyptic view. But the point about that is, here is McLuhan writing this in 1962. And if you look at the age we live in now, and have lived in for a third couple of decades already, that is a global village. We put the announcement of this event up on Facebook. And in addition to all of you good people who came here, uh, 100 or 150 people said they were interested. And those people, for the most part, don't live in New York. 
if they did say they were interested and live in New York, I'm going to keep track of the fact that they didn't come. But most people couldn't get here. But if you look at Facebook, it is an embodiment of the global village. But my favorite of Marshall McLuhan's tools, and it's tough to choose because the light on light through, that's great. You know, when you begin to understand McLuhan's ideas, you're like a kid in a candy shop because everything is fascinating. But my favorite has always been the Tetrad. And if you're talking about predicting, the Tetrad has in it, in its four-part structure, at that fourth part of the structure, literally something that points at the future. So you can let's do a tetrad on television, which was the big deal in the 1960s and 70s. First part of the tetrad is it amplifies or enhances something. What does television amplify or enhance? Well, immediate audio-visual communication. What does it obsolesce? Radio. Television replaced radio. Jack Benny moved from radio to television had a little bit of a problem because he was getting pretty old already and that's why he started saying I'm 39, I'm 39 yeah. oh, 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 when he was like 109. Nobody knew what he looked like on radio. But he had a very successful television show. By the way, as Eric correctly pointed out and as I'll get to in a couple of minutes, this didn't mean that radio was dead. Not at all. It just meant that radio had been pushed into the background. That's what obsolescence is or to use the Gestalt psychology term, television pushed radio from figure into ground. The third part of the tetrad is it retrieves something, something which previously had been pushed into the background. And in the case of television, it retrieved the audio-visual mode of communication. But the most interesting part of the tetrad, I always thought, was the fourth and it went under several names. Sometimes it's called reversal. Sometimes McLuhan liked to say television flipped into something else. If you think about the tetrad as a wheel, you can think of it as a rolling of the wheel. So what did television flip into? Well, back in the 70s, I first became aware of the Tetrad, and this is one of the fun things about the Tetrad. You can have all kinds of possibilities that you plug into its structure. So back in the 1970s, what was television going to flip into? Well, one possibility was holography, right? Two-dimensional television becomes three-dimensional. Guess what? That didn't happen. Uh, and I was actually talking about that, so unlike Eric and Marshall and those people back in the 60s, that was a prediction that still hasn't happened. But another possibility was the, the sort of regimentation, the almost dictatorial television by appointment that network television insisted upon in those days. Well, cable television overthrew that. And so traditional network television burst into cable television. And 
many other things as well. You could say that television reversed into the internet, which is another kind of swing. In fact, Neil Postman, who was my dissertation advisor at NYU, didn't like the internet because he thought it was a kind of television. <laughs> I always try to tell him, well, it's related to television, but it's not television, because it's what television has flipped into. In 2003, I realized that something very significant was happening again with television. And my daughter Molly is here in the audience. I feel like Donald Trump introducing <laughs> <laughs> um, But in the fall of 2003, one day Molly says to me, hey, Dad, did you hear about this show, Alias? I don't know how many of you have heard of Alias. It was Jennifer Garner's first big show. Great uh, series on conventional network television. I think it was ABC. And so Molly said to me, hey, you know, this is a really good show. You might like it. But there was a problem uh, with my liking it. And that's because in 2003, Elias was beginning its third season. So who wants to, like, start reading a book in the middle? <laughs> well, here is one of the ways I use my professorship at Fordham University for better or worse. <laughs> I wrote an email to, I guess, the publicity people at ABC. I said, hey, um, I'm doing a study on Alice. I get like every single episode of Alice. <laughs> By the way, just to show you how honorable I am, I did actually write an article on Alice and it was published in the Smart Pop series of books on natural cultures about two years later. But I didn't know I was going to write my own. <laughs> when I discovered then, I didn't 100% realize it, but it was the beginning of my realizing this, is that television had flipped into, reversed into something very profound and unexpected. And we have a name for it today. We call it binge watching. <laughs> and sometimes used in a derogatory way, I don't think there's anything wrong with binge watching. As a matter of fact, again, apropos of what Eric was saying regarding literacy and books, what binge watching does is it makes television more like a book. Because think about it, if you pick up a novel, like say one of my novels, the plot to say that and you start reading it, uh, you decide when you stop getting the story, right? You can stay up all night and read the whole thing. That's a good idea. Then you can get another one of my novels and keep doing it. Um, or you can stop after a couple of chapters and then come back to it the next day or a couple of weeks later. In other words, you, the consumer, have complete control over the pace. Network television didn't allow that. The VCR began to allow it if you were able to record a whole series, but it was cumbersome. By 2003, you could begin to get DVDs uh, in video stores, and pretty soon after, Netflix began. And 
So now for the first time, if you discovered a television series, you could see it, you could read the television series as you would a book. And so whether it's House of Cards on Netflix, whether it's The Man on the High Castle, In the High Castle, on Amazon, there are dozens of these series. More than dozens, there are probably hundreds now. And what they are, are books. So I began realizing that in 2004. But I'm the kind of person, I don't like just thinking about something, putting a, you know, mark in a column, checking it off. Okay, television is now reversed into binge watching. I like to keep the process going. So for the last couple of years, I've been thinking about what is binge watching going to reverse into? So this brings us to this past May, okay, May 2007. I'm driving up to Cape Cod in my new Prius, which I got only because my old Prius died from the incredible Jews. And not only that, in this new Prius, there is Sirius XM radio, which was there free. They give it to you free for three months. Now, you might ask, why did I get this earlier? Again, my point about being an incredible chief. Uh, and I've actually been on Sirius XM radio interviewed, but I didn't feel like paying. I guess I could have listened to them again, you know, pulled out the old professor. Yeah. Line, to think of it. Anyhow, here I am, it's the end of May. I'm driving up to Cape Cod, and I've been listening for the last three or four days, not to MSNBC, which is what I first started listening to, being such a devoted professor, you know, wanting to stay up on the news. But I heard that there was a new channel, the Beatles channel, that was going to be playing nothing but Beatles music. 24 hours a day. <laughs> Not only Beatles music, but various shows about the Beatles, Peter Asher's, from me to you, Peter Asher, Peter and Ford, who gets involved without love. Dennis Elsis, who is a disc jockey at our own WFEV FM. He has a great show, The Fab Forum. So I was just listening to this. And then I heard this. I can't tell you how I feel My heart is like a wheel Let me roll it That in case Woo! you didn't recognize <laughs> <laughs> Was Paul McCartney's song with Wings in 1973 It was the flip side of his better known hit Jet and I realized the moment that I heard that play, that I was witnessing, actually earwings, <laughs> the flip of the tetrad, it was rolling into something else. Binge watching television had rolled into binge listening satellite radio. <laughs> Now, that might sound like a superficial 
point, or, you know, Levinson's just so crazy about the Beatles, letting that mix into his theory, that's true. But there is something, I think, very significant about binge listening in contrast to binge watching. For example, what's the longest stretch that we could watch on television? Well, it depends how you do the accounting. I Love Lucy has been around since the 1930s, and you can watch I Love Lucy now, so that's a pretty long stretch. But how many years was I Love Lucy? Three or four or five years? Three years, right? And then it was like the Lucy show, and then she broke up with Desi, and so it wasn't that long. Lucy, 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 just, it was only on for a few years, so if you try to binge watch Lucy, you're going to get the same thing over and over. All right, well, let's look at it another way. What about Star Trek? Ooh, Star Trek begins in the mid-60s, Toss, as it's called in the industry, the original series. Then there's Star Trek The Next Generation, Rachel, then a whole bunch of other series, movies. CBS just came out with a new Star Trek series, Discovery, but I haven't seen it beyond the original because, again, CF Cheapskate, I don't feel like paying for the new yeah. service. Enough is enough here. So Star Trek has gone a long way, but if you binge watch Star Trek, you're going to get not only different episodes, which would be the equivalent of different songs, but you get different actors, right? It's not the same. William Shatner did not appear in every Star Trek episode throughout all the series and the movies. No one has. But now, let's look at binge listened to radio in the case of the Beatles channel. <laughs> On the Beatles channel, you can hear, hear Paul McCartney not only singing the song that I just sang, but you can hear him and the other Beatles back when they were acquiring men in the late 1950s. You can hear everything through the 1960s, their early songs, what happened when they began to get more serious songs like Nowhere Man when they went to that psychedelic era. You can hear what happens when the Beatles break up. And indeed, you can hear Paul McCartney literally singing at one of his concerts in the last couple of months. That to me is a very profound development. And then there's also this. The ear, the acoustic mode, is something which Marshall McLuhan, Tony Schwartz, who John Carey's going to talk to you about, and savvy people who have studied media have long realized in one way or another shapes everything else. There is something very profound about the way sound reaches our brain. It's a very different way than the way light reaches our brain. What happens with light is it excites an optic nerve and gets to our brains. What happens with sound is there's literally eardrums in both of our ears, and they vibrate. And that's how it gets to our brains. And that vibration is not just an incidental Better. So sound shapes us. 
And one of the things that Marshall McLuhan and Tony Schwartz like to say is that television itself treats the eye as if it were an ear. Because television is all around, just like sound is all around us. And many other characteristics of television. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little talk about the omnipotent ear. You can find out more about the McLuhan in New York event, as well as a link to the omnipotent ear paper if you'd like to read that. On the show notes for this episode of Light on, Light Through. And I'll be back here soon with another episode of Light On, Light Through. In the meantime, enjoy. Athens, 2042 A.D. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left, again, into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson spilled code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries. 